We made this. Welcome to the Starlight Ballroom. Hey. Hello and welcome to Shipwrecks and Comatose, the podcast about Red Dwarf here on the We Made This podcast network. My name is Mark Adams and I am your host for this second of two weekly specials where we're looking at some kind of weird ass anomalies that (laughs) really I don't remember at all because I wouldn't have had access to them. I'm blathering. But what we're looking at is some PBS specials that were broadcast in the States when Red Dwarf was bought over there by these public broadcasting things. Last week's we looked at was Swirly Thing Alert, the first one in 97, and this week... Funnily enough, we're looking at Smegheads in Seattle, which was a little bit later. And that one was broadcast between Series 7 and 8. And back again for the second week running, I have got Vink, a.k.a. Kevin. Say hello. Hello. Really happy to be back. And I've also got Devin Rowcliffe as well. Hello, Devin. Hey, Mark. Thanks for organizing this. So, yeah, we had a lovely chat last week. Oh, so nice. <laughs> about swirly thing alert which thinking back a week ago oh that was so fun yeah well you know we do this i at least try and pretend <laughs> everybody knows we record like two or three episodes on the bob yeah but you, you have to you have to ruin the magic anyway so last week <laughs> we had a chat about um swirly thing alert the first thing i want to say is I would have thought Smegheads in Seattle would have been better for Robert Llewellyn and Craig Charles rather than Swirly Thing Alert because Danny John Jules is here for this one (laughs) and his character said Swirly Thing Alert. Swirly Thing Alert, yeah, it's very strange. But no, we're um, we're looking at Smegheads in Seattle and you two are back just in case people didn't listen last week. Kevin, very quick potted biography of yourself. All right, Uh, I am a... American from the Midwest, uh, who's been living in Japan for nearly two decades now. And uh, the last time I lived in the U.S. was uh, just just a few years after uh, this special was made. So this is very nostalgic. And Devin, how about yourself? Uh, I'm from Canada, originally Vancouver, but now in Toronto. Started watching Red Dwarf in 94. Uh, Work as a writer about politics and sport. But uh, enjoy a lot of British comedy. That's how I got into Red Dwarf. Brilliant stuff. So Swirly Thing Alert, which we talked about last week, was a two-hour monster, whereas this was only 50 minutes. So this is probably going to be a shorter episode, but, you know, that's what podcasting is. You can do shorter stuff. We're not a fucking radio show. Yo, don't (laughs) test me. I don't know where the sass has come from. Yeah, so let's talk about Smegheads in Seattle. Like I said, it was broadcast between Series 7 and Series 8. It had Craig Charles and Danny John Jules going over to the States to do some promo work and some interviews in a similar vein to what Robert Llewellyn and Craig Charles did on the previous episode. And um, the first thing I noted was the music was just... What? <laughs> Go into detail for us, Mark. Yeah. Um, just, <laughs> I mean, obviously these things are dated, but, yeah. a, 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 but oh dear. 
it, I think it was dated then, surely. Royalty free. Oh, is that what you think it is? Oh, yeah. Do you think it was as... So, you know, we when it comes to podcasting, I either ask Colin, because he's a musician and he did our theme tune for this particular show, or I use royalty-free stuff. And you quite often hear the same royalty-free things oh, yeah. again and yeah, again and yeah, again. Yeah, there's there's yeah. stuff like, for example, that the Yogcast use that it's free access, and so everyone fucking uses it. And it's like, fuck... Oh yeah, I have to do promotional videos is one of the things in my job and we use these things and I, you know, get them from the YouTube royalty free libraries or whatever and then you hear them you hear them again like in a commercial or for a smartphone game and I'm like, oh, okay, I know which song you're using, yeah. But uh, with PBS, yeah, they probably bought a collection of eight tracks back in, you know, the the late 80s or whatever that were like royalty free music. And (laughs) then they're like, well, we have seven songs that should do it, you know. Yeah, a lot of these channels had very small, low budget catalogs that they might actually buy. They might be licensing involved, but these would be absolute dreck, you know. Yeah, they spent most of their budget just getting the things. So like they had very small studios they had. I mean, the Seattle one's much, probably much better funded than the the one from my local area because we didn't bring in Craig Charles, (laughs) but they have their little studio where they do like local programming we we talked last time about how you didn't really know much about pbs but you maybe heard of some of the talent that you know things that were created that premiered on pbs or were help partially funded by such as sesame street the joy of painting with bob ross these were all pbs shows no way yeah i didn't actually know that that's amazing and so a lot of them would be filmed at one of the PBS affiliates, but then they would be brought, the, the other PBS stations would pick it up as well. Unfortunately, uh, l- there was a program in my local station that played during daytime. It was called Sewing with Nancy. It was made, and it, was, <laughs> it was not a great program, but, you know, it's a very calm, quiet program, but it was made, but it was broadcast on many other PBS stations during yeah. like during like that amazing block of like, 8.30 in the morning on Wednesdays or something. But you'd you'd see often they'd, they'd have the station identifiers on the different programs. So probably some of the programs that were made in Seattle I had seen um, on, on our local stations. And but, but each station put their own programming. There were some that pretty much every PBS station picked up. But like things like Red Dwarf, not every station had it. Things like Doctor Who, not every station had it. In the Midwest, you picked up a lot of Canadian programming too, which was interesting. So I want to talk about towing with Nancy. I don't know whether the term <laughs> <Do we>? Nancy, <laughs> well, only very briefly, it's, no, just, it's, it's just her name. It's brought it's up childhood name. trauma. So uh, the term Nancy in the UK does have yeah. connotations of an insult. Is that the, the, the same over in the States? I, I think only because we watch a lot of British things that, that I, I don't think we had that connotation by itself, but right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah Nancy is a derogatory term for gay man. And yeah. um, I, yeah. this is a t- ridiculous tangent, but I want to tell a funny story. My old boss was called Nancy <laughs> and she served me, uh, I bought something from the shop and it said you were served by Nancy and that's <laughs> fine. But then when I started working there, there weren't enough logins. So I had to log in as her, <laughs> as her login Ooh. onto the till. So when I served people, it said you were served by Nancy. And I'm like, that's a fucking hate crime. The till has hate crimed me. 
I think you're entitled to some compensation. I hadn't thought about that for years until you mentioned sewing with Nancy. <laughs> Fucking hell. Well, there's, Fucking there's hell. your retirement plan right there. <laughs> Resurrect sewing with Nancy. Well, we have, there's a candy company here called Fanny Farmer, so. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Fanny Farmer? Yeah. Her name's Fanny. I now have farmer. a brand new term. <laughs> right. This is my new derogatory term for heterosexual men, is Fanny Farmers. <laughs> Fuck. I've heard of Fanny Pack, but not Fanny Farmer. Wow. Fanny Pack, it just sounds like sex to me. <laughs> the Fanny Farmer cookbook. It's like a classic. I'll send, I'll send you the Amazon link right now. Keeps getting oh, better. What? What? what are they cooking? <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> Dep- depends what they farmed. You know? This is derailed quite shockingly. And I'm not going to edit it. At least it's organic. <laughs> oh, dear. Not sure about free range, though. <laughs> Oh dear. (laughs) Anyway, um. right. Let's talk about this. Let's let's talk about this actual thing we're supposed to be talking about, rather than Fannies and Nancys. Um, Ken Vincent was he ever famous in the states? No, not familiar with the name. Okay, he did the. uh, Sorry, if I'm stealing your thunder here, but he did some of the interviews in both of these episodes, and he he seemed very awkward in the first. Uh, one year ago, the sorely thing alert. He seemed very awkward, but he was a lot more comfortable in this one a year later. Okay, that okay, he was that guy. Okay, mm-hmm. that's why I'm asking is because you know he clearly improved, and we we saw what's his face, Joel McHale, in the previous one as well. Yeah. And I wondered whether he was also famous, but he's just not. I've literally never heard of him outside of these Red Dwarf interviews. I've never seen him in any other KCTS production. So maybe he just escaped my radar. But yeah, definitely not famous. But I don't know about you, and I don't know whether I'm blaming Ken Vincent or not for this, but it felt like Craig and Danny weren't as good as an interviewee combo as I Craig totally and agree. Robert because they just talked over each other yeah. constantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was quite jarring to watch them as like a duo in this, whereas I thought that there was a really good chemistry between Robert Llewellyn and and, and Craig Charles, whereas this just felt like two drunks just yeah. trying to get one up on each other in a lot of ways. Well, they literally were in the past, weren't they? When they were filling the early series, the two of them would go out clubbing until about 5 a.m. or something like yep. that. So yep. I think they're used to finishing mm. each other's sentences and interrupting each other, but that didn't make for the greatest audio in a television special, did it? No. It really didn't to me, no. I Again, I, I thought the chemistry of Robert and Craig was was, was much better. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As you said, as interviews, I mean, they seemed like they were having a lot of fun. Yeah. But... It seemed like a lad's day out rather than a yeah. promotional tour piece. Whereas it did feel a little bit like, you know, they were clearly friends yeah. in the previous one with Robert and Craig. Yeah. And also this felt like it was on a even smaller budget it was half the length they didn't have them going out and doing interesting things i think it kind of reflected how red dwarf was fading as well because let's be blunt series seven and eight were not as good as Mm. series five and six and i think the viewing figures had dwindled a little and certainly it's critical acclaim had it didn't get any awards for seven and eight whereas it did for series six yeah so i don't know it almost feels like it reflects what was going on with Red Dwarf itself in a weird, weird way? I mean, that's that's definitely a possibility. I think, I think the series seven and eight 
uh, had good viewing figures. But yeah, I think a lot of the fandom was a little disappointing. I know I was. I was older, and it wasn't as important to me as it once was. Mm. And then it wasn't as good, and so therefore, you know. Yeah. One thing I would say to credit this this special in 98 is that it was a bit punchier, um, not just in terms of being half the length, but also for a special we talked about last yeah. week from 97. It would literally dump one huge chunk, like this is an interview that goes yep. 20 minutes, and then this is another segment that goes 20 minutes, and then this is another segment. Whereas I would say that this special was better produced in terms of being punchier. It would hop between you know, a 10 second clip from an interview and then a 20 second clip from the studio. So in that way, I felt it was a bit better. But yeah, there was some downsides to it as well. It was a lot. I mean, the first special, probably about as long as if you took out all the repetition, because like the interviews were almost exactly the same, you know, all the questions were being asked and they they had the studio audience. I mean, I got to hear that uh, Craig Charles really enjoyed time slides because his brother was in it like six times, you know, so like, Yes. Which was a great story the first time, you know, but like, yeah, (laughs) the editing was better on the second one, but it did feel, yeah, it felt a little cheaper. It felt like little less was, was going on. And some of it just looked like camcorder footage of like (laughs) some of their, what was that stand up almost? I don't know. And that the Hummer ride didn't really seem to represent Seattle very well. I guess that was no. a kind of a typically American thing for a British viewer, but I mean this was this was to be viewed by Americans. So for yeah, them to exactly. be driving a Hummer in Seattle seemed a bit strange to me, it honestly. It feels to me like just something they wanted to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's legit. Yeah. They were kind yeah. of on holiday. Sure. And the dealership wanted the free publicity, I guess. Oh definitely. It was it was mentioned in the credits and stuff like that. So I mean, I'm guessing that's another PBS thing is that the dealership paying some money would mean that they could afford Red Dwarf, right? Yeah. Precisely, yeah. I think they were saying at the end of this, uh, they were giving thanks to the sponsors and they mentioned British Airways. So I assume they had free tickets over. And there was one other sponsor, I don't recall. Some like computer software company that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you about this. I was going to ask, is Attachmate a famous brand in the US? Because I I hadn't heard of it. My first time to hear it was this special. But like... I'm guessing they were more of a, a, you know, like business applications and stuff like that. A lot of the PBS sponsors would be like, uh, you know, businesses or things like that, law firms, things like that. And Microsoft came out of Seattle, so it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if there was quite a few niche startup companies in the 90s that were based in Seattle but never made it. Speaking of Microsoft, it's in the first special they refer to that they're going to take a tour of Microsoft. And in the second special they went, yeah, we went and saw Microsoft and apparently According to the story Craig Charles tells, they were given a demonstration on teledildonics. <laughs> and I'm like, that, that definitely didn't happen at Microsoft. You know, no. I don't, uh, That would be a way to, you see, when a man and woman loves each other very much. <laughs> when a man and a computer love each other very much. <laughs> when a man and a computer love each other very much and you have a high-speed connection, you... <laughs> Uh, you, 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 a computer fuck, but kind of, but like it would be one that you'd, I want be, one. you'd be one that you'd be connected <laughs> with another live person also wearing a Fanny Farmer, and like <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, sorry, it's this this one got way dirtier than the first one. <laughs> it really is. I'm, I'm shocked. Americans are supposed to be like reserved and not talk about sex. Oh, are we talking about sex? Sorry. It's different words here. So <laughs> what was in that right. cup of tea we had? 
Indeed. But if anything, this one, even though it was made later, in the nine, like like later on, almost into two thousand, felt much more nineties than the first. Oh one. yes, yeah, I think you're right. Danny John Jules was wearing his Godzilla the movie T-shirt. It did smack of they don't care yeah. what really, didn't it? I mean, yeah. at least on the last one, Robert Llewellyn had a Red Dwarf T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was funny, but in terms of the nineties content, it was it was amusing to hear. Craig Charles crack a joke during his stand-up routine about the the time it takes to download a naughty photograph. Yeah. Uh, I was either True. from the very early internet or pre-internet when you had to yeah. use a modem. Mm. And of course, he was mm. cracking cracking gags about the the Bill Clinton sex scandal as well. So, yeah, I was going to say tons of Bill Clinton jokes in there, and then and then Craig Charles was was singing an R. Kelly song. I mean, oh, talk, that, talk, that that triggered me. I was, like, hell. I was like, oh, you know. But this would have been like the year after Space Jam. Mm. But I mean, it was so nineties. They went to a Seinfeld viewing party. Now, I was going to ask you. Seinfeld doesn't seem like it was a big thing in the UK. I've heard of it. I've never watched it. But like, it was the biggest thing. Like the last episode of that being shown, like shops were shut down like it was huge huge thing you know the funny thing is if you look at the ratings for seinfeld over the the seasons or the series it didn't go up that much i think it was just a really good marketing stunt to say oh it's the last episode and everyone got sucked in i think so i mean it was definitely a popular show during it oh yeah but Um, for our purposes it it dates the or it lets us know exactly when this was filmed that would have been may 1998 yep just the fact that they got kind of like dragged along to like a, a lobster eating Seinfeld <laughs> viewing party. It's just like, what, what is going on here? Craig Charles is sitting beside some baby, yeah. some nonplussed baby, watching him try to eat lobster, trying to crack the lobster with his teeth, break his yeah. molars in half. Like, what is going on here? Yeah, it screamed low budget, didn't it? So there was a lot of very similar stuff, really, to the previous one, too. Um, Swirly thing alert. Oh, yeah. And one thing that stayed consistent was that there were a lot of questions that weren't really appropriate for actors that should have been directed at crew members. And, yeah, it's something that hasn't changed 20 years on, being honest. And what I did think was impressive was how much knowledge both Craig Charles and Danny John Jules actually had to be able to answer shitty questions like that. Oh, yeah. But I suppose they've been asked them so many times. They've probably yeah. fans have told them how to answer them. You know? <laughs> probably not far from the truth. You know, yeah. someone will tell you something that, got, that does have the kind of obsessive fan knowledge mm-hmm. and yeah. you retain that. It's useful, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And they responded well in terms of if they didn't know, they would turn it into some kind of a joke and just make a laugh out of it. So I thought they handled some of the more obscure questions well. Oh, yeah. And I really did think that you, you're right, that they clearly knew how to work a convention audience, which not everybody does. Yeah. Yeah, it's a difficult skill. And obviously, they'd been to a few in the UK by this point. So, yeah. Mm. And a few in the US. They, they refer to um, that they went to AngloCon, I guess. And so, again, the, there were bits and bobs that I learned, but a lot of it is kind of public knowledge now because, you know, we live in a world where we have the internet. I don't know. The stuff about the cat's accent and the inspiration from various black actors I found absolutely fascinating, particularly as we've established that they were really concerned that the character might be racist. Yeah. And 
it, I thought it was a nice kind of continuation of that, actually, how something that they were concerned was racist was actually something that Danny John Jules took us as an opportunity to showcase black talents. I thought that was brilliant. And also in a world where a lot of this was full of 90s ick, both of them, yeah. that was actually genuinely fascinating and genuinely cool to hear, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I thought so too. I assume that the inspiration for the voices, both for Robert and Danny, came from those individual actors' choices. I'm not sure how much Grant Naylor would have had influence in that in terms of why don't you borrow from this and borrow from that. But I assume it was primarily the actors who were thinking of who to use. And I mean, you know, with Danny's like, uh, you know, stage background and things like that, I mean, there's a very similar voice that he uses um, if you've ever watched the, the movie Labyrinth, Jim Henson movie. I love he Labyrinth. voices two of the fireies, those those uh, the creatures that like remove their heads or whatever, and he's got a very yeah. cat voice right there. It's like, it's like, no, nah, it's no fun if you don't remove your head. So like that voice seems to already be, you know, something he's used and and he's just dialed it up a notch to be the cat. What year was that movie from? Uh, Eighty seven. Oh, okay. We've genuinely discussed whether or not that's too tenuous a link to be able to look at Labyrinth because all <laughs> of us really fucking love Labyrinth. Yeah. So my watch favorite, this space. My favorite movie. <laughs> I have multiple copies of it on my shelf. <laughs> yeah. The threat of more specials. Yeah. It's definitely in my top five favorite films for sure. Alongside Child's Play, obviously. And then there was the thing where they all do impressions of each other. I mean, I knew that... <laughs> yeah. And they were actually very, very good. Oh, but, yeah. and, and, you know, I knew that Chris Barry does very good impressions because he read the audiobooks. But no, they, they were really impressive with their um, impressions as well, I thought. And, you know, I'd be fascinated to hear someone else read one of the audiobooks, you know? Well, Craig Charles reads the abbreviated versions of the audiobooks. Does he? Yeah, I believe uh, I'd have to look up which ones. And I think he read one of the, like, either Backwards or The Last Human. Yeah, he definitely reads something. Yeah. Yeah. Does and, he? And, and his impressions were pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, Chris Berry's, like, that's how he got his start. Spitting image. Yeah, exactly. And of hmm. course, Rob Grant, Doug Nyler did the chicken song for Spitting Image. So. Yeah, I did know that. And um, that did very, very well. I think it got to number one in the charts in the UK. Well, it was my first time hearing Danny John Jules use a Scouse accent. So in the last episode of this, we talked about how optimistic Craig Charles was about Captain (laughs) Butler. It was genuinely heartbreaking to see how upset he was that Captain Butler had failed so miserably because it was cack. He was completely resigned to the reality, at least. Yeah, but it was kind of sad to see his... uh... Yeah, he was saying, oh, I've been in lots of things. I've been in four things this year, but uh, you could kind of see that he knew none of them were at Red Dwarf caliber. Yeah, which I don't think was the case when he was there the previous year. I think he was quite optimistic. Yeah, he was kind of like, you know, Series Eight's maybe the last one because I'm going on to bigger and better things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he certainly looked like he was uh, expecting to become a big star. Oh, it was uh, Last Human read by Craig Charles. Last Human. Okay, so it's only the first two that I've listened to, so that makes a lot of sense. I think I've listened to a version of Last Human voiced by either Grant or Naylor, but I might be mixing them up. Backwards, uh, Rob Grant did, but I'm not sure about Doug Naylor. But the thing is, sometimes, uh. the abri- sometimes the abridged versions and the unabridged versions were read by different people. 
Right. Mm. And yeah, again, it's the thing is, this is very similar, just much more truncated to the previous special on PBS. And there was some more of Craig's stand-up, which I thought was excellent. Yeah. And some more little anecdotes that bits and bobs that I um, didn't know, like uh, didn't know that uh, Red Dwarf was Craig's first acting job. And uh, what I think is fascinating is he was talking about how he didn't really see himself as an actor. He is now in more episodes of Coronation Street <laughs> than so like he is in an obscene amount of those episodes. Yeah. And he really is an actor these days. And that's, I guess that's how things have changed. Yeah. I guess it was interesting how none of the cast members were classically trained as actors, but that's part of what mm. made this feel fun and a bit more gritty, less polished. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. Almost natural in a weird way. Yeah. Well, the, the chemistry between Barry and Charles in the first um, episode or the first series where they're going back and forth, you know, porridge in oh, space yeah. is the early Red Dwarf is often called. That seemed a lot of fun. That seemed quite natural. It didn't seem overly smooth. You saw Todd Hunter come in, uh, Robert Bathurst, and he was quite smooth of an actor, but I thought it was a lot more fun seeing Lister and Rimmer go at it. And they are not classically trained actors. Mm. I mean, that was a lot of the charm you get when you're not trying to act as quite as much, you get a little more of reality creeping through. And, and yeah, they, they kept mentioning over and all that the, the, the characters that they have are really kind of just extensions of their actual personality, kind of um, exaggerations of. Much like professional wrestling, I guess. Yeah, you're not wrong. Um, I think what's fascinating is that they really are, clearly enjoying this if they're not good actors or they are actually very good actors because they're just having a massive laugh while they're doing all this oh yeah and so i think there is an element of the acting ability didn't really matter for red dwarf and it didn't really matter for this because it's just people having fun and maybe that's why red dwarf is so well loved and has such longevity yeah, what was that in in a in a recent uh, interview? They said like like Craig Charles was talking about that he doesn't see himself doing all of these other roles, you know, forever. They're they're limited time things, but Red Dwarf is one that will always be. You know, he's like, if they call me up, I'll always be there. You know, so I mean, I was delighted to hear that. Maybe because yeah. of that. That's why a show can go on so long with its original cast because they haven't burnt out. <laughs> I'd say Craig mm-hmm. Charles in particular, rather than trying to posh up his voice like uh, a scouse actor like Leonard Rossiter did in The Fallen Rise of Reginald Perrin, you have Craig Charles mm-hmm. actually amplifying his uh, scouse accent. And as we're saying, you know, you're just taking the real persona and dialing it up to 11 or 12, and that did make it feel a lot more. A lot more real, mm. and the um, the stuff on backwards was fantastic, particularly for the time. I think a lot of this information that we now know and take is like all the fans will know this kind of thing. I think that would have been absolutely fascinating and something very brand new. There was a lot of stuff like that in this episode. Oh yeah, and I don't know of any special of the of its equivalent that was made in the uk at this time no i i don't know this might have been some of the first times these stories were put to a media that you could watch outside of a convention because there weren't 
commentary tracks at this point. There weren't tell-all books. You know, you basically had the episodes that aired and maybe some behind the scenes from like uh, Robert Llewellyn's book. Yeah, and there was some coverage of this sort of thing in the magazines, which didn't sure. last all that long. And sure. they, they were finished by this point. Yeah, but yeah. Again, Americans certainly wouldn't have accessed the magazines very easily. No, I, I had, but, <laughs> but, but I ordered them from the UK, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think some magazines were available in one or two stores in Vancouver, but they were definitely a niche artifact over here. Mm. But other than that, this one just felt very short compared to the other one. Oh, yeah. And I did watch them out of sync. I watched this one first, not Ah. realizing. And um, so I watched them in a weird order. Well, the only other order that it could have been (laughs) in the right order. So technically a weird order. But yeah, so... So I guess I wasn't as disappointed with this because I watched it first, if that makes sense. Ah, okay, yeah. I watched it directly after the first one because I didn't have time this week to to, to watch them, so I watched them both back-to-back, and I was Mm. like, oh, if I have to hear the same stories one more time. (laughs) Yeah. Listen to Craig Charles do the same uh, poetry womanizing again. (laughs) That fucking poem. It worked so... He got kissed so many times. And what was always funny was, don't watch Craig Charles doing it. Watch either Robert or Danny standing next to him, rolling their eyes that he's doing it again. <laughs> watch it again. Watch it again and watch the watch the background people because he's probably like, oh. Here we <laughs> go know? again. I just find the whole thing a little bit creepy. One thing I thought was quite good in the second yeah. special, we didn't see much of it, it was the isolated interview that Danny John Jules was giving. So when he didn't have Craig Charles beside him. So we yeah. learned, for example, that he was performing in musicals while he was filming Red Dwarf Series 1 and 2 and also getting yeah. pissed at night with, with Craig Charles. So he was only having about you know two or three hours of sleep many nights and still able to go out and perform. Um, but that was a really interesting interview where it almost felt like he didn't have to it wasn't the lads day out sort of interview that it was with, when Craig was beside him. It was a lot more serious. He wasn't competing with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a good interview. We didn't see much of it. That would be really interesting to see in its entirety, but I, it's probably gone. Well, you never know. Again, a lot of people tape these pledge drives because it was a good way to tape a bunch of shows in mm-hmm. order. So I bet the tapes exist somewhere. It's just whether the people have the, the motivation to digitize that stuff. Yeah, mm. really makes me want to go look through my old VHS tapes. Well, if you do, let us know and um, maybe chuck some stuff up. That'd be cool. Yeah, I'll have to head back to the states first before that. But yeah, yeah. But if I mm. find anything, it was also interesting to learn how uh, uh, Robert Llewellyn would be the first one in and the last one out for makeup. So the other oh, cast members would sit down for their makeup and they'd observe Robert and they could tell if he was cranky or chirpy, what kind of a day he would have based on that. <laughs> yeah. And um, there, there's only one other thing that I really noted. And again, it's, it's not particularly pleasant. It's another crappy thing. Uh, the story about Paul Jackson and how he threatened someone and ripped their shirt. Yeah. Yeah. That would not fly now. Oh, no. no. Fucking hell. If you watch any of like the commentaries or whatever, or, or Paul Jackson seemed to be quite, yeah, the commanding influence on the set. So yeah, they've they've all got stories about him. Yeah, he was so mm. he was so prominent in comedy that he could get yeah. away with literally anything back then. I assume. Yeah. yeah. Was there anything else that you picked up on that you wanted to talk about? 
Danny and Craig, despite all these convention appearances and the fact that they brought it up unprompted, said, we're going to do our favorite scene from Red Dwarf and then just completely missed all the lines <laughs> was kind of fun. They were a bit rusty. But like it was uh, you could see it in their eyes. They're like, oh, wait, I do not know this as well as I thought I did when I I boldly said I was going to perform it. You know, yeah, there were some good little nuggets in this that we learned about that probably weren't public knowledge beforehand. Yeah. uh, The Grant Nailers, the comedy police and the very, very little ad libbing that went on during rehearsals and uh, filming that yeah. they, they would allow uh, injections of ideas during the initial read through. But then after that, it was basically locked and they would allow almost nothing. Mm-hmm. That was kind of interesting and stuff like Craig Charles mentioning that he had an episode idea where Crichton becomes human and the rest become androids. And uh, yeah, which kind, I mean, you know, that idea. I'm led to believe it happens Indeed. in a strange way. Not exactly as he says, but also, how they were uh, talking about, you know, they were talking about comparing a, during the whole ad lib thing, comparing like an American show with a whole team of writers to their show, which had basically two writers for the first six seasons and then a, a few guest writers, but but mostly, you know, all in-house. They were pretty scathing, weren't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they were fair when they said that it does work sometimes, but it doesn't work for something like Red Dwarf being converted. Yeah. And there's a lot of shows that have struggled like Red Dwarf did when the st- they were looking at doing a remake in the States. Oh, yeah. I can only really think of The Office that's done really well. Uh, I mean, All in the Family is probably the most famous one that came from a British show. And then Sanford and Son came from Steptoe and Son. You know, there's there's some. There's some that made did fairly well. But like in recent times, not really. The Office, yeah. Mm. Yeah, The Office. Yeah, I think Odd Couple was another one, if I'm not mistaken. Really? I, yeah. Is it? I think it might have a different name in the UK. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, there weren't, there aren't that many. And they were, most of these shows that did cross the pond successfully were in previous decades. Yeah. I mean, they tried so many of them. There was a US version of Coupling. There was a US version of yeah. Men Behaving Badly. There's a US version of... Wasn't Coupling a ripoff of Friends, though? Yeah. And so the U.S. tried to rip off the ripoff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Back and forth it goes. That's what we do. Do you know how many Spider-Men we have? A lot. We have a lot of Spider-Men. So. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Well, I learned that Chris Berry had a, a fear of flying. That was news to me. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's why he didn't go to the convention that I signed up for. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's a possibility. When I heard of that, I immediately yeah. thought of the Tomb Raider movie that he would have filmed in Hollywood. Yeah, I guess he got better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he said he he was doing a documentary about engineering or something, which sounds more like a Robert Llewellyn thing to do. But uh, yeah. apparently he had to fly for that documentary, and that's when he got over the aerophobia, as it's called. Very interesting. Mm. I mean, just in general, I, I, these specials were just fascinating. They really were, and I'm glad we've done it. I don't think I'm ever going to watch them again. Oh, no. But no. I think as a one-off, I think they were great fun to watch. And there were some little tidbits that even now was stuff I didn't know about Red Dwarf. And in this day and age with the internet, we know so many of these little facts and figures. So to look back at something 20 plus years ago and to learn something new is interesting. Would you recommend that people watch them if they haven't already watched them before this? Uh, Kevin? Yes. Yes, I would. Uh, but not not before you've watched like all the the main things do do, do you know what i mean like 
Yeah. I feel like there's value to them, but I wouldn't recommend them over many other things. That seems fair. For me, since I've watched all of Red Dwarf and, and uh, quite a bit of the special features from various things and a lot of strange videos like the tongue-tied video and its making of and stuff like that, for me, there's very little new information, but the fact that there was some at all was the most surprising thing. Yeah, that's, I'd agree with that. Would you agree, Devin? Yeah, I mean, if you're listening to a Red Dwarf podcast, you're probably a bit of a Red Dwarf geek, so you might as <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> it might not be top of your list, but there's some interesting curios, especially if you want to see these snapshots in time from 97 and 98. These can be fascinating. Yeah, if you chuck it on while you're doing your ironing or something, you don't need to sit down and concentrate and watch it with the critic's eye that we did to prepare for this episode. I think if you chuck it on and just listen to it in the background while you're getting on with some housework, I think it's something really fun for Dwarf fans, actually. And I think it does have some real value and interest. So, yeah, I would recommend it. They were both pretty fun. I've seen so many interviews with the different cast during just, you know, the the DVD special features and things, but all of them were recorded with tons of hindsight because they were they were made in the 2000s, ah. you know. And so yes. they were reflecting on something that happened a long time ago. But in this, they're reflecting on some things that happened a couple of years ago or this year. And I think it was a, a very different type of take, which a lot of people who collect a lot of movies, uh, sorry, to, to expound upon another geekdom, I collect laser discs. And one of the reasons I do is because they had commentary tracks usually much closer to the release of the movie. When it came to re-releasing them on Blu-ray or whatever, they usually recorded a new uh, commentary track. And they were often quite different. And some some people had soured on the movies they were in since then. So it's it's really interesting huh. sometimes. I think you're right. The value is in the snapshot of the exact time, which is something we said about the magazines as well. So, yeah, I think that if you're watching it as like almost like a historical document without yeah. the hindsight, which can to some extent ruin it, I think you bang on, actually. Yeah. Is there anything I've missed that you did want to talk about before we say cheerio? One thing that made me chuckle at the very end when they were naming the sponsors, there was a kind of a posh American voice, and uh, he had to say the, the the name of this special. So hearing a posh American say Smegheads oh, yeah. was quite amusing. <laughs> Smegheads in <laughs> Seattle was, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You wonder if he knew what Smeghead meant. <laughs> oh. Not a chance. <laughs> Well, you know what? I gotta, I gotta bring up that that one moment in the special when they, when, when probably a child in the audience goes, "What's a smeg hat?" and they just, they just, <laughs> yes. they just break down. They're like, "Oh, you know." That was one of the funnier moments of the first episode. Yeah, yeah. If a child asks you what smeg is, it's not a good day, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's a particularly intimate thing to be uh, yeah. explaining, yeah. isn't it? You'll find out one day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. So, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure having you back on for these last couple of episodes. Kevin, where can people find you on the internet? 
Uh, they can find me at famicomdojo.tv or .com. Both will, both will take you there if you're interested in uh, retro games, especially from Japan. Uh, if you want to find out about our television podcast where we talk about uh, new and old shows, that would be uh, Two Boobs Watch the Tube. Just be careful. Safe search on while you're looking for that. So. Um, cause you, 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 you make, you make a couple keystrokes wrong and you're, you're on the fanny, fanny farmer website. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> That's a bucket list goal of mine. <laughs> Devin, where can people find you? Uh, if you're interested in politics, primarily Canadian and UK, you can find me on Twitter at Devin Rowcliffe. So that's R-O-W-C-L-I-F-F-E. If you're interested in football, particularly fan ownership of clubs in the Anglosphere, including the UK. So if you're interested in clubs like Wimbledon or Exeter or FC United of Manchester, you can follow me on Twitter at Who Ate the Squid. And I also have a book out in the UK with Pitch Publishing called Who Ate All the Squid Football Adventures in South Korea, which is about a former juggernaut in South Korean football once won the African-Asian Cup, but they had absolutely plummeted. And so they hired a Scottish managerial crew to come out and uh, three players from English football to come out and resurrect the team. Amazing. So thank you very much for listening to another episode of Shipwrecked and Comatose. So until next time, (laughs) Monica Lewinsky. (laughs) Oh, really? Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf podcast, was created and produced by Mark Adams and Kurt North. You can find us on Twitter at Red Dwarf Pod. And we are part of the We Made This Podcast Network, which can be found online at WeMadeThisPod.com or on Twitter at WeMadeThisPod. If I asked you to think about Japanese movies, what do you picture? Anime, no doubt. You think of the beautifully rendered works of Studio Ghibli. Maybe you picture Godzilla and his coterie of city-ravaging kaiju. Perhaps you see Toshido Mifune wandering the countryside and armed with only his wit and his blade. And I know you're trying not to think about the pale-faced ghosts with long hair and creepy noises. And maybe you're a fan of the exploitation type of cinema, where schoolgirls wield chainsaws and machine guns with abandon. My name's Perry Constantine. I'm an author and a teacher, and back when I was in college, I had the exact same image of Japanese films as you did. It was my love and interest in these movies that led me to move to Japan. Now, almost 20 years later, I'm still here and teaching classes about Japanese film. What I've learned in that time is that Japanese movies are so much more diverse than just anime or kaiju or samurai. Sure, those movies are fun, but by exploring the wide range of Japanese cinema, there's so much we can learn about Japanese history, society, and culture. That's why I started Japan on Film. In each episode, I'm joined by a different guest to help me spotlight just some of these excellent movies. We'll be watching the good, the bad, the popular, and the bizarre. Come along with us on a journey into the wide, wonderful, and sometimes very weird world of Japanese cinema. Listen to the Japan on Film podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit our website, japanonfilm.com.